0: Thanks for watching today at WildwoodChurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Uh, My name is Brian Smith, one of the elders here, the lead pastor. It's good to have you here this morning. On behalf of all the pastors of Wildwood Church, I want to say thank you for your notes of encouragement. Uh, your tokens of appreciation this month for pastor appreciation month. I think I can say with uh, sincerity and integrity on behalf of all the pastors that we feel blessed to be part of what God is doing at this church. And we're thankful to be able to shepherd you, to lead you, to minister to you. And so thank you, church, for letting us uh, do that with joy. Amen. Uh, I want to uh, talk real quick about light the Night. I have not spoken about this, but I want to uh, to talk about this for a moment because, you know, on my, on my feed, on my Facebook feed, I see conflicting uh, sentiment regarding Halloween and whether churches should be part of what goes on on Halloween. And, and honestly, I think some of it's just nonsense. I mean, Jesus stepped out of heaven into the darkness in order to save wretched sinners like me. That is what Light the Night is doing. We are not endorsing evil. I would encourage you connect groups to not dress up as witches or demons or dark things. I, you know, don't embrace it. Don't celebrate it. But look, Pastor Andrew was right. Hundreds of thousands. He, he, he thought he was wrong. I think he's right. Hundreds of thousands of children in the Quad Cities will be combing the neighborhoods that we live in. Their parents are out. They're with them. Light the night. Be the presence of Jesus Christ in your neighborhood. We, we opted to, to, uh, to scatter instead of to gather. We opted not to do a trunk retreat this year because I heard from you. You said you, feel, you felt conflicted. You wanted to be in your neighborhoods where, where your neighbors are so you can reach them. Okay, do that, please. Please do that. Uh, give the best candy. Be the friendliest faces on your block. And, and as Pastor Andrew said, if you live like we do, don't have a neighborhood, go find a, a friend in the church, a connect group that does have a great neighborhood. That's what my family and I are doing. We're joining another connect group in a great neighborhood. And listen, the reality is that if, people, if you are in your neighborhood and you come to Wildwood, then people that are combing your neighborhood and that live there could also be coming to Wildwood that in other words they're within reach and that's why we're doing what we're doing folks we have hundreds of these invite cards on the table and Cecil as hard as you tried two weeks ago to convince people that we don't need them to remain on the table there they remain uh, folks please I'm asking and am begging you to take some cards to represent Wildwood Church not only because of our church but because of Jesus right this this is a great opportunity for you to hand out candy, and hand out an invitation card, and maybe it starts a conversation about Jesus. I also want to encourage you to pick up a yard sign. These are beautifully designed, uh, but they're very seasonal. So in just a few weeks, these will not be on theme any longer. Uh, And so, listen, they've got a QR code uh, to take people to our website. Um, I would love for us to be able to, to recoup the cost that we spend on these, about $5, but at the end of the day... Whatever remains is going in the trash. And so if you're not able to purchase one, please, as the lead pastor, i authorize you to just take one. But if we can recoup the cost, that would be wonderful. Coach Hudson, thank you. Folks, we have an opportunity to be the light of Christ in our neighborhoods. And I want you to do that. I want you to, in whatever way you can, to be the light of Christ in your neighborhood the neighborhood is coming out in force tomorrow night, and they're going to be walking by your house, and they're going to be looking for something good from you. Give them something truly good. Amen? Snickers bars. <laughs> the gospel. All right? Okay, to air is human, right? We know that. We know that we make mistakes. We know that there is error. We know that there is right. We have a conscience. The the fact that that we would even accept that error is, is part of our life is to acknowledge that there's a right way and a wrong way. If there's no right and wrong, there is no error. We all know that there's right and there's wrong. It's universal knowledge. Why? Because God has given every single person... A conscience. And that conscience bears witness to us, as Paul says in this passage. Let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Father, you have given us an awareness of right and wrong. You've hardwired that on our hearts. You've given us a conscience that affirms when we do right and and it convicts us when we do wrong. Lord, no man is with excuse. No man has an excuse before you. Lord, I pray that you help us to reflect upon our lives, to examine our lives, I pray, Jesus, that we would pursue and seek a clear conscience, a good conscience, a a working conscience with you. I pray that you bless the preaching of your word and our response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12 says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Paul here begins with the word for, which lets us know that everything that follows in verses 12 through 16 is helping us to understand what he meant in verse 11, where he says, God shows no partiality for. So he's going to now explain what he means, that God is an impartial judge. He shows no partiality. Now, God's judgment is for those who have sinned. If you don't sin, then you don't face God's judgment. That's wonderful news. That applies to none of you. But God's judgment is for those who have sinned, whether they have sinned without the law, i.e. Gentiles, or they have sinned under the law, i.e. Jews. Those who sin without the law will perish without the law. The word perish means eternal punishment. Those who sin without the law will face eternal punishment punishment without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The Jews who have been told God's righteous standards and righteous decrees, what the law requires, they will be judged by the law. That's what God will judge them with. God will not judge the Gentiles based on a written law that they have never heard, but they will still perish without the law. You don't need the law to convict of sin. Why? Paul will tell us in just a moment. The Jews have the light of the law to illuminate their lives and yet deliberately sin against God's holy standards. And they will face judgment for that. They even boast in the law, Paul will say in the next couple of verses, or in verse, I think, 23. They boast in the law. In other words, they're proud that they have received the law. It was a source of pride for them that they were enlightened to God's moral, righteous decrees, and yet they sin against the law in which they boast. Having or even knowing the law is not enough to justify a person. The fact that you have access to it, the fact that you know it, does not save a person from God's judgment. That is part of Paul's point here. Why not? Verse 13, Paul answers the question, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but who? The doers of the law who will be justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. To be justified is to be declared legally righteous by God. And it is not the hearers of the law, who are declared righteous, but the doers of the law. It's not enough to know the law. You have to do it if you want to be justified by it. And this echoes the words of James in James 1.22, where James says, But be doers of uh, of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James, like Paul, was a Jew. He knew the culture. He knew how they acted, he knew how they felt, he knew their attitudes, he knew their prideful hearts. They felt that because we have access to the Word of God, that we're good with God. And James and Paul say, no, it's not having the Word, it's doing the Word. Now, we want to make sure that we don't get tripped up here. When Paul says, doers of the law will be justified, we have to keep in mind that he also says in Romans 3.20... By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Is that contradictory? Sounds a little bit contradictory. Paul knew when he said that, it, it, that uh, doers of the law will be justified, he knew that he was also going to say that by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Is it contradictory? The answer is no. Technically, if you could keep the whole law you would be justified. Technically, if from birth you never sinned against God's holy standard, then you would stand righteous before God. The reality is that no one ever has and no one ever will. So the statement, doers of the law will be justified, that's technically true. It's not hearing, it's doing. The reality is that no one will do? No one will do. To think that because you have a Bible and because you know some of what the Bible says and that you generally agree with the Bible, that for the most part, except for your pet sins, you don't disagree with what the Word says, and, and for, the, for the most part, you try to, to live by what most of the Word says, that you're good with God, that, that's deceiving yourself. That's deceiving yourself. This, along with James's warning, is a is, is an alarm for religious hypocrites who pride themselves on knowing the word. But their hearts are not transformed, their hearts are not changed to the Lord. Now, these next two verses are some of the hardest in the Bible uh, to interpret. Some of the hardest, especially in Romans to interpret it. Uh, Who is Paul referring to when he says, in verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. There's a lot of debate about who is Paul speaking about. Is Paul speaking of Gentile sinners like the wicked world out there, or is he talking about Gentile Christians who have come into the church, who have been born again, and, and, and have, as Jeremiah 33 says, predicts that God will write the law upon their hearts? Is, is that who Paul is talking to? There's debate. What is clear is that the Gentiles do not have the law. The law came to the Jews. The law did not go to the Gentiles. But by nature, Gentiles do what the law requires. They who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. There's also lots of debate about that term, by nature. Now in the ESV, you see the comma there. It is, those, they who do not have the law, comma, by nature, do what the law requires. That's an interpretative comma. That comma suggests that by nature, modifies, they do what the law requires. But in the Greek, there's no comma. So if we were to delete that comma, then it would read, They are a law to themselves, even though, uh, excuse me, uh, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, in other words, by nature of who they are as Gentiles, do what the law requires, or, as the ESV writes, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, comma, by nature do what the law requires. So there's debate, and if you're interested in the in the technical debate, if you'd like to study more, Thomas Schreiner of the Baker uh, the Baker Exegetical Commentary articulates this pretty well. And there's lots of thoughts, and you can get really deep into this. What exactly is Paul meaning here? I'll spare you the technicalities, and I'll share with you what I lean towards. You know, the interpretation that I lean towards. And I think Thomas Schreiner does well when he says we shouldn't be too dogmatic in how we interpret these verses because there's really a strong debate on either side. But here's what I think Paul is saying. God equips all human beings with a moral compass by nature of being the image bearers that we are. In other words, God hardwires on our hearts an intrinsic knowledge that there is right and there is wrong because we have been made in the image of God. It's part of our nature. Now, undeniably, most people don't follow their moral compass, but occasionally they do. Right? We all know unbelievers who love their parents. Does the law require that? Yes. Who love their children, protect their children, want the best for their children. Does the law require that? Yes. Unbelievers who walk the little old lady across the street. Does the law require that? Sure. Be kind to other people. Help those that cannot help themselves. Give to the poor. Give to charity. Right? The law requires these things. We know unbelievers who don't know the Lord, who don't love the Lord, and yet who do these things. I think that's Paul's point. There are people that don't know the Lord, who don't know the law, but by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves. We don't have to possess the Mosaic law to know that we are moral creatures to know that there is right and there is wrong. The fact that every culture has a moral standard. In every culture, there's an appreciation of right and wrong gives evidence of the fact that we are, by nature, moral beings. And moral beings don't come from nothing. We come from a moral creator, and we stand accountable to him. Everyone has the work of the law written on their hearts, Paul says. Everyone has the work of the law written on their hearts, and therefore they are without excuse. Verses 15 and 16 read, "...they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." So God's moral standards are self-evident. The work of the law, namely the conviction of right and wrong. That's the work of the law, is the conviction of right and wrong that is written on the hearts of all people. So no one, whether they are Jew or Greek, has any excuse before God because God has impressed it upon our very hearts Such that even without a written law, we understand that we are not living the way we ought to. Note that Paul is not saying that the law is written on their hearts. He doesn't say the law is written because the law is not written on the hearts of all people, especially Gentiles. But the work of the law is written. The Lord gave everyone a conscience, and our conscience... Bears witness, Paul says. It convicts us when we do wrong. And it says, a boy, when we do right. We feel good when we do something right. We feel bad when we do something wrong. Our conscience bears witness with us. The work of the law is written on our hearts. Nor is Paul suggesting that they fulfill the law. So Paul is not saying that the, that the Mosaic law is written on the hearts of Gentiles. Nor is Paul suggesting that the Gentiles fulfill the law. The fact that their thoughts are conflicting, he says, sometimes accusing, sometimes excusing or defending, makes it clear that they don't have a clear conscience. They don't have a right conscience. That their conscience convicts them one one moment and affirms them at another moment makes it clear that they have not fulfilled the law. Why? James says, Forever, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. So we can't read here that Paul is saying, well, because some Gentiles try to do good that they've fulfilled the law. That's not Paul's point at all. He's saying that everyone's going to be judged by God. Those who have the law are going to be judged by the law and those who don't are going to be judged by the fact that God has given us a conscience that they know right from wrong. Notice that Paul is saying what's universal is not salvation but judgment. Those who sin without the law will perish without the law and those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So this is a far cry from saying everyone's going to get to heaven. It's really saying everyone's working their way to hell. No, one's, no one has an excuse. The fact is, everyone knows that there is a right and there is a wrong. We may not like it. We may choose to ignore it. We may surround ourselves with people. This is why community is so important uh, for sinful people. You surround yourself. You want to be rebellious, you surround yourself with rebels because they affirm what you're doing. They, 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 look, down, they look at you and they say, yeah, what you're doing... Even though you know it's wrong, that's right. So even if we surround ourselves with people that that affirm what we're doing, we still know that what we're doing is wrong. We may not like it, we may choose to ignore it, but we know it's wrong. Everyone knows that it's wrong to murder in every culture. Everyone knows that it's wrong to sleep with someone else's spouse in every culture. They, They may ignore it. They may harden their hearts to it, but deep down everyone knows this ought not to be done Everyone knows that it's wrong to steal and it's right to give Everyone knows that it's wrong to cheat and right to work diligently Everyone knows that it's wrong to talk bad about people and right to encourage them Why? Because God has given us a conscience that bears witness Now, unfortunately, like all of our other capacities that God has given us, our physical capacity, our physical body, our mental capacity, our emotional capacity, like all of these other human capacities that the Lord has given us, our conscience, the capacity to discern between right and wrong, is also flawed, is also broken. Our consciences are easily muted, And ignored and silenced. When we first begin to sin, we feel what? We feel guilty. We know that what we're doing is wrong. And so what do we do? We silence our conscience. We suppress our conscience. We look for affirmation from the community around us. Tell me that what I'm doing that I feel so guilty for is right. Because I like the reward of my sin, I'm going to silence my conviction. I feel guilt and I feel shame because my conscience bears witness against me that this is wrong. This is what Paul calls a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4. We can so suppress or so sear the conscience... But there is nothing to restrain us from rushing headlong into sin. But it is possible, praise the Lord, it is possible to have a fully functional, working, sensitive conscience. And that was, in fact, Paul's aim. He says in 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The conscience is a gift from God, just as the physical body is. And the person with a sincere faith, with a genuine love, with a pure heart, can also have a good conscience before the Lord. A conscience that is tuned to the heart of God. A conscience that is clear. As Paul says in Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In Hebrews 5, 14, we see the concept that conscience needs to be practiced. It says solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. And that powers of discernment is another way of talking about conscience. Our conscience is how we discern between good and evil, right and wrong. Now, to be clear, God did not give us a conscience to determine what is right and what is wrong, but rather to discern. So he says, uh, the author of Hebrews, "...solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." Just as you exercise to give your physical capacity practice, so you give your conscience practice by distinguishing between good and evil. So, how do you practice your conscience? How do you work this out? How do you learn to distinguish good from evil? How do you tune your heart, your conscience, to the heart? of the Lord so that when you so that when you feel that, that when you first feel that conviction you say aha this is the lord convicting me that what i'm wanting to do is wrong how do you do that well first of all you have to soften your heart the first thing that you have to do is soften your heart right now You're sitting here listening to a sermon on sin, and your heart has a condition. It is either soft or hard. You need to make a deliberate decision right now to soften your heart. You need to decide that you're going to stop justifying yourself that you're going to stop trying to to convince yourself that what you know to be wrong is right, and you need to soften your heart right now. It's a deliberate decision. You make a deliberate decision every moment to either harden or soften your heart. I want to exhort you with the words of Hebrews 3.15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. You understand that the sin of rebellion is nothing new. It goes back to Adam and Eve. The very people who were given the law is who the author of Hebrews is talking about. The time of the rebellion was the time of the Exodus. Those that were given the law heard from their God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea with all the plagues and all the miraculous provision. And they hardened their hearts toward the Lord. They knew what was right because they had the law. It was very clear. And they hardened their hearts. Brothers and sisters, do not harden your heart. Soften your heart. And once you've softened your heart, Then and only then can you ask the Holy Spirit to gently expose the areas of darkness and bring into the light the secrets of your heart. Soften me, Lord, I I, I want to hear from you. I trust in your grace. I trust in your mercy. I want to know, to lay my heart, search me, O God, See, if there's any grievous way in me, I I want to receive conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to know. I want to discern. I I want to affirm that what you say is right is right, and what you say is wrong is wrong, no matter what it is. I don't want to be part of the rebellion. The Holy Spirit exposes you to God's will and God's ways, but it's not automatic. He uses what? The Word of God. He uses the Word of God in your personal quiet time with the Lord in prayer and Bible study, in, in your Bible study with friends and connect groups and triads, in corporate study and sermons and Bible studies here at the church. The Lord uses His Word to begin to transform your heart and transform your mind so that your heart is tuned to the heart of the Lord. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's not automatic. You will not tune your heart To the Lord simply by coming and sitting and enduring a sermon Soften your heart you ask the Holy Spirit to fillet it open to reveal sin and then you do the hard work of Praying and reading and seeking transformation. That is how a person trains or practices their conscience This should be the motive of every one of us. Every one of us should be motivated by this. Why? Because every single one of us will stand before God in judgment and give account of our lives. Perhaps, you, perhaps you're under the mindset that, hey, you tr- put your trust in Jesus, you prayed a prayer, you were baptized, you're never going to have to answer for your life again. That's not what the New Testament teaches. It says here in, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I don't know what judgment looks like for Christians. I know that Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned. We don't have to fear being separated from God and sent to hell. And yet, throughout the New Testament, there's an affirmation that Christians will account for their life before the Lord. And I just want, to, I want you to imagine the scene. I want you to think through and process what that's going to feel like when you stand before Jesus and He asks you, Brother, I died for you. I paid for your sin. I gave you indescribable grace and mercy and I called you to a life of holiness, and I gave you a conscience to convict you of sin. Why did you? Why did you not listen to it? Why did you harden your heart? I sent you pastors, I sent you teachers, I sent you shepherds. I, I, and why did you harden your heart? And you go because I could, because I knew you would give me grace. Because I knew that if I sinned more, that your grace would give, be more. And, and so I, I, just, I sinned because I could, Jesus. In verse 16, Paul describes the judgment day as a day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We can count on one thing for sure. We may not know exactly what judgment looks like, but we can know that Jesus' judgment is going to be perfectly fair. God shows no partiality. Jesus shows no partiality. It's going to be perfectly fair. No one's going to be able to stand and make the accusation, ah, you've been too hard on me, too lenient on them. No, God shows no partiality. Nor are we going to be able to say, ah, but you don't know the facts. You don't know the situation. You don't know the story. You don't know what I was feeling. You don't know what I was going through. Jesus knows all and is going to expose all. The truth of your life is going to be laid bare. The motives, what Paul says, the secrets of men, it's going to be exposed by the marvelous light of Christ. Your motives. Jesus knows your attitude for coming into the service this morning. He knows how you're receiving these words right now. And He's going to expose the motives of my heart and your heart. It's not just our actions. It's not just our words. It's those things that we so desperately try to hide. Perhaps that no man will ever know what's in the deep, dark recesses of our hearts is going to be exposed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 5 Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. It's not lost on me that I will give account, not only for my own personal life, but for how I shepherd you. And Jesus knows the purposes of my heart. He knows the motives of my heart. And he's going to come back. And 1 Peter 5:4 says that when the chief shepherd reappears, he'll give an unfading crown of glory. Implied to those who have done what Peter exhorted us to do, to the elders who have done what Peter exhorted us to do, not domineering over people, but setting an example. Not for shameless gain, but eagerly. Faithful, shepherding. It's not lost on me that I'll stand before the Lord, and he will expose the very purposes, the motives of my heart. And he will to you as well. All the reasons that you do everything will come to light. Christian, we should ask the Lord constantly, check my heart, Lord. Because I believe that sin that is confessed in this life, we recognize it, we confess it, it's done but we keep harboring it, we keep justifying it, perhaps that's what's going to come out on the day of judgment. You made made a show to everybody that you're this righteous, moral, upstanding, respectable person, and yet look at the condition of your heart. Had a uh, Connect Group meeting earlier this week, a Friday night, and one of the guys shared some stories of, of houses that he's been in. He's in HVAC. And he shared some of the stories of the conditions of people. And, and a lot of times it was in the basement. And he, he talks about how going into the basement, he turned on the light, and the light didn't really come on. And so they're sort of making their way, and they touch the light bulb, and hundreds of thousands of flies dispersed. Sewer flies, they dispersed. The light was on, but they were covered by sewer flies. And then they looked down, and they're standing in inches of sewage. Right? And, and it was disgusting. And we were like, oh, how could anyone live this way? And then someone astutely made the connection that God sees in our hearts. How many of us have open sewage in our hearts, while on the outside everything is A-OK? We hide in the darkness, we ignore it, we push it down, we repress it, we say, ah, that's not really there, not really a big deal. The Lord is going to expose it. The light will shine. Now, this is hardly comforting news to most people because most people are trying desperately to hide their sin, to suppress the truth, to lie about their motives, to deceive not only others but also themselves about their character, and the last thing that most people want to hear is that truth will be exposed in broad daylight. But here's the gospel. There is good news. And here's the gospel. The righteous and just judge, Jesus Christ, is also the merciful Savior. The one who will sit enthroned in judgment now stands in defense of everyone who calls out to Him for forgiveness by faith. And Jesus is eager. He is eager, not begrudging, not reluctant, but He is eager to thrust upon you His mercy and His grace and to forgive you of all your sin. Why, Christian, would you want to go about hiding sin when you know it's going to be exposed in judgment, when today you could soften your heart and bring it to the light and let Jesus Christ cover that with His blood. Why? If not that you have not changed your mind about sin. The reality is that people still love their sin. People still want to get away with their sin. And until you are ready to deal fully with your sin, you will continue to justify and try to hide. But the day will reveal it. Now remember that Paul's main point in Romans 1 and 2, the main point is to expose the sinfulness of all humanity in God's perfect impartial judgment. He's trying to bring the whole sinful world to its knees at the recognition of impending judgment. Come to the altar of grace. Come to the cross. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5:6: Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, Jesus is going to satisfy that. He's going to clear that conscience. He's going to purify that soul. But, brother and sister, you have to hunger and thirst for it. Why did you keep on sinning? Because I could. Because I could. Because I knew that your grace would abound all the more. Paul is calling Jew and Gentile alike to stop searing their consciences and start confessing their sin and stop trying to justify themselves. As long as any church is filled with people who refuse to get real, the enemy will maintain a foothold. Did you hear me? Wherever the church is filled with people who refuse to get real about their sin, the enemy will maintain a foothold. And the church will remain impotent. Two weeks ago, I invited men of Wildwood to go to war with pornography. If you weren't here two weeks ago, I highly encourage you to watch that. I began with my own testimony. I'm not judging any man or any woman that deals with pornography. But I invited the men of Wildwood Church to schedule August 18th of 2023 for a men's rally. It's far enough that I doubt you have anything on your calendar yet and also gives you enough time to go to war with it in your flesh. I invited men to make war against Pornography, and unsurprisingly, I received several emails and text messages and Facebook messages telling me that they did, in fact, go to war with their flesh. And several men, for the first time, confessed this sin to their wives. That was not surprising to me, and the Lord is already beginning to heal those marriages. Nor is it surprising to me that several men, if not maybe most, have yet to deal with this. You heard that call, and you seared your conscience. And you thought, I know that he's talking to me. I know that I struggle with pornography. I know that I need to own this, but I don't want to. You seared your conscience. You made a decision. You've hurt yourself. You've hurt your family. I'm inviting you once again. This is not going to go away. You're not going to just ride this out and hope that Pastor Brian forgets. We're not going to forget. At the risk of being the porn church, the church that talks about pornography, we're going to deal with the cancer of pornography in the church. We have to. We have to. It's not going to go away. It doesn't just get better. You have to deal with it. Men, I'm once again doubling down, encouraging you to have this conversation with your spouse. If you haven't already, do this. Put the flesh to death. Put the flesh to death. Now, women, I know that men are not the only sinners in our church. And months ago, I heard from women saying, Brian, when you get to women's issues, you sort of go softball, and, and you don't deal uh, as strongly with, with women as you do with men. I, I'm a fan of, of, of telling men to kill Adam. But I think it's time for me to tell the women to kill Eve. That women, you are sinners too. That you don't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to your husband sinning. That you need to go to the cross and recognize what you have been forgiven for as well. And you need to recognize that your husband's heart is the most important thing to the Lord. And you need to see your husband as a brother in Christ, not only as your husband... When your husband sins in pornography, he sins against the Lord. And when you sin, you sin against the Lord. Women, I know that our culture impacts your heart as much as it does men's hearts. And if we're going to go to war with the cultural impact on men's hearts of pornography, which is, which is, the, which is the, progre- the, the continuance of Adam's sin of passivity, I will conquer without work. I will achieve without doing anything. We know that our culture also continues the sin of Eve. Usurping, is that me popping? The searching, uh, or the, the continuance of the sin of Eve, the rebellion in her heart. Women, if we continue to pretend that men are the only problem in our church then marriages, families will go untransformed. Our church will be impotent, powerless. This doesn't justify men's sin. You cannot hear me say that. But women, we we can no longer ignore the sin in your heart. If you are not in Christ this morning, I implore you to repent of your sin and turn and follow Jesus. But if you are in Christ, men and women, I am asking you, exhorting you, pleading with you, that you soften your heart now and say, Lord, what cultural influences, what cultural norms, what things that the culture says is virtuous and right and good have I believed? Even though clearly your word says this is wrong. Women, we need you to do this just as we need the men. Because the culture, the the toxicity of culture is alive and well in the women of the church just as it is the men. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have given us a conscience. You've written it on our hearts. We know right from wrong. We suppress the truth. Help us, Lord, to soften our hearts and come before you and fall down on our faces, even physically now at the altar, falling down before you, Lord, asking you to expose in us the sin that we have so tried to ignore. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.